Welcome back to the Revolution and Ideology podcast series called Myth is America. I'm Jared. I'm Nick. And uh, today we're going to keep the ball rolling in a post-war for independence era. Um, recently, you probably all have listened to some episodes on the framing of the Constitution and some of the critiques of that Constitution from the likes of uh, Charles Beard and Lysander Spooner. Uh, well, now we're actually going to see it in practice rather than seeing just the actual critiques. One of the things that we get from the Constitutional Conventions and ev the eventual basically coursed signing of the Constitution alongside the Bill of Rights is the enforcement of political and legal federalism. And that's all well and good, but it doesn't mean much without enforced economic federalism. And that's what we're going to be focusing on today. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, everybody's favorite uh, musical topic these days, Alexander Hamilton and his implementation of certain economic policies that not only enforced federalism um, on the United States, but has left a long, long legacy of rampant socioeconomic stratification uh, and support of elites in the United States, which, again, we're still feeling today. So uh, I want to get started. I want to build some context here uh, real briefly in the, in the political sphere. The new government ends up being inaugurated in New York City. Uh, and when I say the new government, I'm, I'm focusing heavily on the executive branch. The cult of George Washington uh, is, is already large towards the end of the war and through the uh, brief gap between the war and the signing of the Constitution. He had retired briefly. I think Nick mentioned it in a prior episode and was back in Mount Vernon. And because of Shays' Rebellion and eventually this need for a stronger federal entity, he's brought out of retirement. Um, he does win a unanimous victory as the first executive of the United States with strong support by our boy uh, Alexander Hamilton. And uh, John Adams finished a distant second, which originally meant that he was vice president. All that changes in, I want to say, like 1804 with the 12th Amendment. But at first, basically second place got, got to be the VP. Uh, funny little factoid as I was looking this up that I thought was very interesting is in this first election, the first election in United States history, under 10% of the adult population voted. And one of the reasons for that is because there were racial barriers, clearly. Wealth barriers, some states actually still required uh, a certain amount of land to be held. There were definitely, we already know, uh, gender restrictions, only men could vote. And in some states, even after, of course, the Constitution, there were religious barriers. You had to take religiosity tests to prove that you were a worthy stakeholder in this new government. I mean, it's just obscene that the first, first president is elected under these auspices. Anyway, further, there's the Federalist versus Anti-Federalist propaganda led by Hamilton, Jay, and Madison that really, again, it leads the charge. We already spent an episode talking about it, but I'm basically just trying to play catch up. One thing I want to focus on, though, is this notion of the regal executive office, which Hamilton was all about, and there's gonna, this is going to play into how he's going to try and fund this. The idea of the regal executive, this almost like kingly power, where in theory, the original constitution was supposed to be a uh, more or less equal separation of three powers, but very soon after, in practice, it becomes clear the executive branch will be the higher esteemed and eventually... Uh, superior branch in terms of not just like public in the public sphere as far as the way we frame it, but it'll actually become even a little bit more powerful. 
the debate that historians have is how much of this was George Washington pushing his own envelope and his own agenda, or was this really the people he chose to surround himself with? And though this podcast, and myself in particular, have uh, definitely picked apart George Washington's character in regards to, and I will repeat this every day, his owning of slaves— his order of the ethnic cleansing of the Iroquois League of Peace and Power, and, of course, leading an army that executed its own troops. Uh, I don't know that we can blame him for manufacturing this cult of personality that comes around him. They were holding fancy galas. Uh, they He always had to have the nicest carriages. They had parades. They had parties. All of this is taking place in New York City during this inaugural inaugural process. And even titles were proposed to him, ranging from His High Mightiness to His Excellency. Now, he did not like those titles, so maybe we can forgive him a little bit in this regard. He liked to just be called Mr. President, and obviously that, that legacy has lasted through today. But what I want to emphasize here, and with guys like Hamilton and, and, and to lesser degrees, Jay and Madison and Knox, supporting this type of activity, this idea of the regalness of the executive office, really, it just catches fire at this time. But here's the catch. It costs a lot of money. And tied to some debts from the war, this is going to lead to a new economic freighting of the United States. As far as Washington's cabinet, I mean, it, it, I'll give you a brief, brief summary here of the cabinet. Knox, who I just mentioned, ends up being the Secretary of War. Secretary of State is John Jay, at least for the first year, and then he's replaced by Thomas Jefferson. And the Attorney General General ends up being Randolph. The reason this cabinet is interesting is because there was constant drama and political intrigue, especially in the debates between Hamilton and Jefferson. They really did not like each other. Hamilton was a state builder. He was a, a Federalist and a Nationalist. And Jefferson was not. He supported the idea of uh, more of a Republican view of things, not the modern political party, but an actual republic and a more agrarian society where there were more freedoms and liberties given to states and individuals within those states. Hamilton wanted uh, a very – I mean he wanted a somewhat of a legalist and highly stratified society, which led to constant political debates between these two. The vice president – um, didn't necessarily get along well with either. Vice President John Adams is on the outs with all of these members of the cabinet, and he's like never invited to the parties. So since he's like from a different political ilk than the others, um, he he basically feels like he's being ostracized in the cabinet, which is, again, interesting because he's eventually going to be the second president. He'll eventually succeed uh, George Washington. I bring all this up to show – not even to show – to basically discuss the idea that Alexander Hamilton and the political roulette he's playing throughout his his career after, of course, uh, ending up with uh, – in this – well, as the first treasurer of the United States is going to help guide some of the inconsistencies or as I might just flat out call them hypocrisies of the post-constitutional government that are going to become apparent especially when we dissect his – uh, economic policies. Some of them will uh, be undone by later executive branches, Jefferson being one of them. Others will perpetuate because the systems will be put in place and people, uh, well, as Thomas Paine would have framed it, just kind of get used to doing things traditionally without actually questioning, and that's a problem. So let's talk real quickly about uh, our musical man, Alexander Hamilton and the economy. Uh, let's, I'll do a brief bio. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. Again, there's an entire like popular musical about this guy, which is – in fact, let's just pause for a second. Nick, why is there a musical about this guy? I mean you could have done somebody badass like Thomas Paine who we already had an episode about, but like why? 
Yeah, I don't even know. I literally can't explain it. I, and the fact that it's like a hip-hop musical is even less, just like more absurd to me. I have no idea. Yeah, why use hip-hop? This man, I mean, there was a point in time where like the notions of slavery were brought at congressional levels and in the cabinet levels. And he basically just moved right past it, just avoided the topic altogether, understanding that his economic vision, the United States, was predicated on slave labor. Yep. The audacity of then using hip-hop, at one point resistance music to, honestly, the racist institutions that last to this day, to tell his story is an obscene kind of cognitive dissonance. I don't – what's, the, what's, the, what's the director's name again of the guy that wrote the songs? What's his name? He's famous. Oh, my yeah. God. We should need to look him up. Yeah. How does that happen? I'm sure there's got to be articles and stories about this, probably interviews with him even of why he made these choices, but – I have never taken the time to look them up because it's not that crucial to my life. Yeah. I mean, he, Hamilton felt you can't exert federalism ideologically, but he thought you could force it. Force it through the economy. In other words, people were still debating the validity of some of what happened at the Constitutional Convention because these were political discussions and disagreements. But once you get people – and this goes back to historical materialism – actually changing the way they behave economically, they no longer in many cases have a choice but to subscribe thus politically and legally. And Hamilton knew that. So for, for being an asshole, I suppose he's kind of shrewd in understanding that was going to be a way for him him to garner further uh, federal control over these newly united 13 states. Now, uh, let's talk real quickly about who the hell this guy is. I'm not, like I said, I'm not going to do a complete bio because the musical kind of does that poorly, but whatever. I mean, it, it's entertaining. Let's, let's give it some credit. It is entertaining. There is a reason that it is as popular as it is. It's a good show. It's just not necessarily the most historically accurate or best way to frame this man who uh, lived an interesting life. And maybe that's part of why they chose him as the subject. His life was all over the damn place. And, uh, yeah. you know, I, I, well, and I have to assume that everything presented in the musical is probably like historically accurate, but that just leads us to a conversation of like, it's anyone can talk about dates and times. It's how you present the information that is crucial. Yeah. I, I guess think. we'll be clear. Like as far as like the events, yeah, accurate, but the way they're framed in this more celebratory manner, this almost yeah. like way to this, this goal of empathizing with Alexander Hamilton, who is this, this wild elitist who supported, well, a whole, a whole bunch of awful institutions, which we're about to talk about. So let's just talk about him. Okay. Real quick. Again, super brief bio. Uh, Hamilton was born in the Leeward Islands. Um, it's interesting, uh, as I was going through research, uh, there is debate about when he was born. There's two different, uh, birth dates, um, and I don't care to enter into that debate. It doesn't really matter. Some say it was for college, some say it's not. His parents were not married, of course, and that's definitely in the musical, uh, you know, whatever. He's even accused by other architects of being a quote-unquote bastard because of this situation. But he's where, born- like, I guess this is my ignorance, but where are the Leeward Islands? Bahamas. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, he is then privately tutored. Uh, he is privately tutored, so he's actually well-educated. He learned various trades, especially um, the actual art of trade itself, of a mercantilist economy. Those are things that he was tutored in. And he ends up – and I'm going through this super fast because I just don't want to do a whole bio on Alexander Hamilton. But he ends up rolling into New York City in 1772 with the goal of attending King's College, which he does. King's College, by the way, is now Columbia. Uh, while he's in college, he becomes somewhat politically active because this happens to coincide with the buildup to the War of Independence, which is an episode we have, uh, you know, recorded a while back. But anyway, during this time, one of the things that he really 
that really grabbed his attention were the loyalist arguments leading up to the war for independence, and he strongly disliked those. And so he spent a lot of his college career writing essays and making publications, and sometimes even you know, smally, uh, uh, poorly attended speeches, basically fighting the loyalists, arguing with the loyalists. This was the discourse that was most interesting to him. When the war breaks out, uh, we got to give him a little credit. He does take up arms. He ends up joining uh, a militia out of New York City known as the Corsicans, and eventually he works his way up through the through this militia and becomes Washington's chief staff aide during the war. So he is willing to actually fight, so we'll give him some credit in that regard. Hmm. I didn't know that him and Washington were close during the war. Oh, yeah. They were they, – yeah, they, they – they, this relationship is what's going to help guide the regalness of the executive branch. That's why I say for all of the critique of George Washington I have, I'm not sure turning the executive branch into this like holy shrine of American politics is his fault. I think it's actually like Hamilton alongside a couple others. Anyway, he ends up appointed to the Continental Congress uh, during the era under the Articles of Confederation in 18, excuse me, 1782. And he hated it. He hated, he didn't hate having any sort of political say so. He hated the way the articles were framed, the discussions they were having. He thought they were wildly inefficient. He did not think 13 different states with 13 different dialectics was ever going to work. He wanted a strong centralized power. He disdained, he actually disdained its reliance on the states and their inability to generate revenue. It comes back to economics for this man. Further, he thought federal law that should supersede state law, which, again, go back to our prior episodes, we know was not the case uh, in the Articles of Confederation. A couple of protests broke out during this period of time from uh, various soldiers who were not being paid, and we've already talked about other protests. These aren't the ones we've talked about, and I won't go into great detail, but these protests got Alexander Hamilton thinking about how they can generate revenue uh, at a federal level to perhaps assuage the issues of these soldier protests, which again, these soldiers are not getting paid. After this time period, he ends up back in New York City and ends up getting involved in a whole host of things to include restoring his old college, which would then be called Columbia he ends up founding the Bank of New York City, and he ends up also uh, opening up a law practice uh, based on his accomplishments in college. He shows up at the Constitutional Convention of 1787 through 1788 and uh, provides his opinions on what this new constitution should look like in this – he spent actually a lot of time arguing for – reform to the Articles of Confederation and then just trashing them and rewriting a new constitution, which is eventually what they decided on. But he was, shoot, some would argue like almost an absolutist, like a totalitarian. That's what Alexander Hamilton was. And he alienated himself at this Congress because people hated what he was saying. To give you an example of what he was saying, Alexander Hamilton proposed in one of his speeches a president for life as well as a senator for life term. And power should go to Quote, unquote, these are his words, the rich and well-born. Why do you think Hamilton felt this way? What a weird thing to propose because even Madison and Jay and some of the other Federalists were not this staunch. They wanted a strong federal entity, but this is even taking it a, up a level. A president for life sounds an awful lot like a Yeah, exactly. I was just king? thinking, even when you were talking about the regalness of the position of president, like that's towing the line between like some kind of monarchy and like the the position of a king yeah it's and weird. why would he have this fascination with the rich and well-born i mean I, again my bio was super brief but dude's born 
to unwed parents on the islands, couldn't get into some schools back when he was a kid because of this, ends up in, in the revolutionary process. And in a way, we'll give him a, a, a shred of credit here, does work hard to build a law practice and find himself within this like rising military rank and a whole bunch of things. He does, he does, he has a somewhat of a rags to riches story in a way, but why this rich and well-born infatuation? No idea. I mean, is it because he's trying to manufacture a dream? Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. Um, James Madison had this to say in his notes because Madison wrote notes at the convention because his plan, as we've already talked about in a prior episode, the Virginia plan ends up being like the crux of the Constitution. Anyway, this is what Madison had to say um, regarding uh, Hamilton's idea. He says the English model was the only good one on this subject. Excuse me. This is Hamilton speaking and Madison recording. The English model was the only good one on this subject. The hereditary interest of the king was so interwoven with that of the nation and his personal uh, emoluments so great, and I probably mispronounced that, that he was placed above the danger of being corrupted from abroad. Let one executive be appointed for life who dares execute his powers. Hmm. He wanted a king. I mean, basically, he just said, like, I want someone so rich and detached from daily life of the regular people that they can possibly be corrupted by anyone. This is Alexander Hamilton. Yeah. (laughs) Like, again, we all pat ourselves on the back. Oh, my God, the architects and the democracy they created. And here's one that says, nah, I think we'd be better under, like, a king. Mm -hmm. This guy. Okay. He goes on to, of course, tape, play his role in the Federalist Papers. Again, we've already discussed those in a prior episode. Um, and the only reason he does so is he actually doesn't like the Constitution a lot because he thinks it's, he actually still thinks it's too limiting to the federal entity. This guy wanted basically a tyrannical federal state. Um, I don't like using this word because it wouldn't have worked for the 1700s, but if we had to, he's a little fascist. A strong central state. Uh, funded heavily by private, like bolstering private interests mm-hmm. and nationalization of corporations and things like that, intertwining these things. Those are all pretty, and then enforced militarily. Those are, woo. Anyway, all right. He ends up um, after uh, the, and I'm skipping through some things here to just try to get through his life. He ends up screwing around with multiple elections. And when I say screwing around with multiple elections, both 1796 and 1800, it means he's basically, again, like I I said earlier, playing political roulette. He is actually supporting certain candidates, not because he likes those candidates, but because they challenge other candidates. I mean, he's, he's behind Pinckney, I believe, from South Carolina, which doesn't align with his interests, but he's basically trying to keep other guys like Adams from rising up in the ranks. So he's, he's, he's a politicker, I suppose. I guess he's playing the game. Um, and I want to talk real quickly. It's not just that he's screwing around with these elections. Also, uh, our audience likely knows he's also screwing another guy's wife at this point in time, uh, Marie Reynolds, and, uh, he ends up getting caught and he is forced to- Is he married too right now at this time? Yes. Yes. Hmm. Yes. And he ends up having to pay off, uh, uh, Reynolds, the husband, to the tune of somewhere in the neighborhood of between like a thousand and thirteen hundred dollars is like hush money. In fact, the dude got so used to this hush like money. Like in today's money or in that? No, in that money. In, oh. that, in that money. That's it, a lot. Yeah, the dude got so used to like the hush money that he actually, once he found out about the affair, he actually still arranged meetings between the two so Hamilton would keep paying him. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Anyway, the dude ends up getting taken down for um, 
some sort of charge. I probably should know this off the top of my head, but I don't necessarily know that I do. Is counterfeiting some some sort of counterfeiting charge, and that's when this uh, affair is made public because Hamilton makes it public because Hamilton was about to get taken down with him by having these financial associations. Then he has to reveal to everybody, "No, I'm just paying the guy because I'm screwing his wife." Um, so that's interesting. That's um, amazing. Can tell you a little bit about Hamilton's character. Uh, after he's in, he's in office, he ends up as the inspector general of the army during the near slash quasi war with France. Most of our listeners are probably not aware of this, but the United States almost went to war with France at the uh, turn of the 19th century. And he ends up needing money to fund the army. He is the inspector general, which de facto makes him almost like in charge of the army. And ironically, he decides to basically propose some new acts to generate revenue for this army. And this is the funniest part. One of the acts that is eventually proposed and accepted is the Stamp Act. And we've now come full circle all the way back to the British. It is a Stamp Act. Oh, holy shit. All right, anyway. He uh, continues his political uh, messing around through the 1800 election. He even used like the Alien and Sedition Acts, which we will have an episode on in the future. We have not done one yet on the Alien and Sedition Acts, but he uses those acts to eventually shut down all New York City publishers until there was only one publisher left in New York City, which is important because, again, this is a man that is seeking to control narrative and basically force all power into the hands of the state. He is a state builder, and he does not want dissenting opinions coming from other publishers. Again, this is control. I mean, think about it. Like, fascist fascist countries go down to one source yeah. for information. Straight up. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, that election ends in a tie between uh, Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr, which leads to the very famous House of Representatives decision that eventually gives the election to Thomas Jefferson. Aaron Burr becomes VP, and we know because of the political intrigues of Hamilton against Aaron Burr during this election, they end up in a duel, and Aaron Burr caps that ass in 1804, and RIP Alex Hamilton. That's his bio done, bioed out. Let's talk economic policy because that's what this episode is about. He set the stage for part of the rampant socioeconomic stratification, this growing wealth gap that we still see alive and well today. And that's what I want to talk about. So what I'm emphasizing in Hamilton's life is his role as the first treasurer of the United States, which at this point in time, as they're still figuring out what everything, what, what role the cabinet plays, basically means he's the one that builds the United States economy. Now, all of his proposals still have to go through Congress, but that's where his experience of being politically underhanded all the time actually helps most of this stuff get passed. So I am now going to emphasize on basically five main points of Alexander Hamilton's economic plan for the United States. The first thing that he sought to do was to create a culture of debt and credit to protect wealthy interests and artificially stimulate growth. He also thought it would motivate labor. In other words, there's this basic idea, and he was well-read. He had studied the Adam Smiths and the John Locks of the world. They inspired him. He constantly cited European economists and philosophers that, that motivated his theories or his practices. But this basic idea of debt for debt's sake to motivate labor, building this idea that as long as people always feel they are behind the eight ball, that they are always playing catch up, that they will work harder and it will stimulate production. What do you think of that? 
Yeah, I mean, obviously it's alive and well today for sure. This, I mean, again, what we see here is if it, and he's doing it now on a national level. That's his goal. He's trying to exert this. This is not just for the individual. He wants every individual in this country to feel like they are always behind. And it's like the rolling ticker on our trillion dollar, is a trillion dollar still debt to this day? This idea that we're always working to get out of debt with the goal never to get out of debt. That's really, we, we don't, excuse me, we as the individuals certainly want to get out of debt. But the goal is not to get out of debt. Now, some argue this helped create capital fluency and um, that there were ways to finance things without actually having the hard capital, which helped stimulate economic growth. And for those people, I will say, yep, that is true. Like it's that is a true statement. What does this mean, though, for those that are not investing in this artificial inflation of currency or manufacture of currency? It means, again, they are now beholden to those investors, to the powers that be, and those powers that be will require their labor to help basically stimulate the payback of debt via the growth in the economy. He issued the first report on public credit. That is our primary source. The first report on public credit. I want to say 1790 through 91. Basically, to do this, he split the debt from the war for independence into two separate categories, national or federal debt and state debt. He then took the national debt and subdivided it between debt owed to France, which was the main financer of the war from a foreign perspective. And as we talked about in a prior episode, the United States would not win this war without French help in many ways, financial included, and domestic debt. In other words, another reason that the war was funded is because the wealthiest uh, colonists helped bankroll the war by buying war bonds. And these war bonds were basically them gambling on a victory and that they would be repaid back um, with interest after the war. So they are the ones that invested in the war. So the funny thing is, is right after the war for independence, the newborn country that is supposed to be about freedom um, is now beholden, not only to the French, but beholden to its own wealthiest citizens. Yeah, we already mentioned this, actually. I talked about it in the Abigail Adams episode because she herself had invested heavily in war bonds. And when Hamilton releases this report, and then they decide to pay back the bonds. It's a huge economic windfall for the Adams family. Absolutely. They are getting rich because of the war, but at what cost? That's one of those things that's, that's well, here, we'll talk about it real quickly. The wealthy bought the bonds during the war. The veterans who fought in the war, and we've already had episodes on this like Shays' Rebellion, were paid in a number of different things from toilet paper currency to sometimes 100 acres of land, sometimes not 100 acres land. But one thing they were also paid in were IOUs. Basically, that's IOU, this almost worthless thing. And those IOUs after the war tanked. Absolutely. The bottom fell out. And so just to make anything on them, these poor war veterans sold them off to the rich again for like pennies on the dollar. So they would become – basically they were just trying to get whatever they could to scrape by because as we already learned in Shays' Rebellion, their lands have gone fallow. They're not as productive. They're being taxed. They're being fined. They don't want to end up in debtors' prisons. So they're basically taking whatever they can get. They're desperate men. So they sell these IOUs to the rich. So now the rich have doubled down on their war investment. Not only did the rich buy bonds during the war, they now own a good percentage – and we don't know the exact number – but a good percentage of these veteran IOUs. Basically, we'll call them now securities, war securities. Hamilton basically thought that the best thing to do with this 
the of the debtors that needed to be paid back first, it should be the elites that bankrolled the war either through the war bonds or through investment in these veteran IOUs. He also argued vociferously against going back to track down the original owners of the IOUs and paying them anything. He thought the vets more or less should be punished for not having faith in the victory or the new country. What do you think of that? Yeah, I just want to stress, and maybe you're about to get to it in a second, but let's just explain this again so everyone understands. So the vets were paid, at least partially, in these IOUs, these war securities. Then after the war, they're obviously all economically broke, and they're trying to literally just feed themselves and prevent their farms from being seized. So they sell the securities for pennies on the dollar to the elite. Then Hamilton comes around and basically publishes a report, and it gets approved that says, you know what, let's pay all of those securities at their face value to the current holders, which now are just wealthy colonists. So the veterans get, like, nothing. They got whatever the original, like, pennies on the dollar dollar was, but the elite now get the full value. So they bought them for whatever. Let's say they bought them for a penny, and now they get them paid bought back at hundreds of dollars or whatever the numbers would have been at the time. But you get the idea. Basically, the veterans got completely screwed, and the elite, like Jared said, got to double down and made so much money off the war. He then wanted to combine all debts under the federal moniker. Why is this important? Why does that even matter to try and absorb all debts as a federal entity? What are you doing to the 13 states then? Control. Straight up. If you can – they no longer get to practice their debt collection or whatever it is, recompense the way they so see fit. It will now be federally controlled. And if you're controlling the debt, you are then controlling the productive capacity and the ability to generate revenue at the state level. He is taking federal control of state economies. Well, and like the states, this is federalism in practice. Yeah, the states no longer have the right or the ability to generate revenue on their own, like to get. Yeah, exactly. Most of these. So here's the thing: most of these people they're going under the auspices of speculators. Most of these speculators and elite security bonds bondsmen also happen to be politicians connected to the federal government. They're Hamilton's friends. He's looking out for number one. He is protecting the elite faction, as James Madison mentioned in Federalist Number 10, but James just wanted to do it politically, not economically. Mm -hmm. The reason I'm bringing up James here is because even he thought this was fucked up. I mean, he he is adamant that those vets should be compensated, that what you're doing is going to stratify the economy and cause some some class issues here. Well, so like, let's just, because you gloss over this super quick, but I think it's important. Many people were arguing when this report was published, like, hey, let's find the original owners yeah. of the war securities and let's pay them back at full value. And Hamilton absolutely argued against this. Yeah. Madison was one of those, one of those folks. He wanted to pay back the vets. So even though Madison is somewhat of a, a federal elitist, well, and here's the thing. He, he was, he's part of the Federalist Papers, Virginia House, all that other stuff. Fine. That's Madison who will get more play in a future episode. But one thing that begins to turn him, because Madison doesn't stay a Federalist. He slowly, as his career progresses, especially by the time he eventually becomes a president himself, is moving away from this strong federal ideology. Um, and I would argue that it is during, based on his notes, that it's during this time engaging with some of these other folks that are even more staunch about a powerful federal entity, uh, especially economically like Hamilton, this is where he starts to turn. So this is also showing like a little bit of a change in the character of James Madison. All right. Anyway, so the country will be in debt to its wealthy and the goal is to pay back the wealthy and everybody else can just wait their turn. 
it can we can wait for it to trickle down. Some of us are still waiting for that trickle down. Yeah, I was going to say the turn never came. <laughs> yeah, we're waiting for the trickle down. Um, anyway, all right. The second thing that he wants to do to further exert federal control over the economy, a national bank. So uh, basically he wants Congress to charter a bank with $10 million in capital. Okay, cool, whatever. We'll manufacture capital out of nothing and we'll uh, – because it's now backed by the United States government, in theory, we'll have faith in it. And slowly but surely that faith will become material and the economy will grow. Oh, but here's a big problem to show, again, Hamilton as the elitist wannabe that he is. Only 20% of that capital of the national bank will be government controlled and backed. 20%. That is one-fifth. And if we buy into the theory that the government is the representative of the people, that means the United States people in their own economy are only one-fifth investors in their own economy. Well, where's the other 80%? Private investment. Hamilton's friends now get to triple down, reinvest in this new national bank, and will own 80%. 80% of the national bank will be privately owned. That's not a national bank! What do you think of that? Yeah, it's a private bank. I mean, why even why even try to hide it? There will be a governing board of this national bank of 25 representatives. These representatives are not elected by the people. They're elected by the shareholders of these investors. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, this is just a private bank that gets the luxury of controlling the national economy. How's he going to fund this thing? Well, the money technically is going to be printed out of thin air, but but there's going to be some sort of revenue that, that backs it. And this tax revenue is going to come from imported spirits, rum, liquor, and whiskey. I am not to whiskey yet, but just keep that in the back of your minds. So he's going to tax everybody, but the people only get one-fifth investment in the bank. And even that's an exaggeration because technically it's the government gets one-fifth investment in the bank. So everybody's going to pay for this, but only the wealthy elite are going to get to use it. What do you think of that? Well, and profit from it. And profit from it. Yeah. It's, I mean, completely ridiculous. Again, James Madison speaks up again and says, dude, no. Like, no. Thomas Jefferson's he is adamant that this is a problem. Um, in fact, Jefferson is going to try undo, uh, he ends up trying to undo a lot of this when he becomes the third president of the United States. But yeah, Jefferson's out. George Washington himself was still president, obviously, at this time, since Hamilton's his treasurer. He even paused a little bit on signing in the National Bank, but eventually Hamilton was able to intrigue him into signing, even though he hesitated for a moment. And like, I think in one of the episodes, I super briefly like mentioned uh, T. Payne, Thomas Payne's later controversy, he comes out in stark support of the National Bank at this point, which is problematic. Yeah, yeah, poor T. Payne. Uh, we like him for the most part, but that's a grave error on his part. Anyway, okay. This also leads to the creation of the National Mint in 1792. And the National Mint, of course, is going to uh, basically Alexander Hamilton wants wants Americans to get used of to to dealing with currency instead of, you know, sometimes currency, sometimes bartering, as Nickel teaches uh, in a future episode, sometimes even getting paid in alcohol. Um, but he wanted them to get used to being paid in the or being used to exchanging currency. So he begins a basically the National Mint in 1792, and it will be on both the silver and gold standard, although gold will be 
weighed as more valuable since silver they felt was more plentiful in being able to import it from you know the Caribbean or Central America or something along those lines. So the National Bank, federal control over banking, not states' rights, not individual liberties, controlling the economy. We're forcing federalism materially. The third thing he wants to promote during this time is domestic production, and he unleashes another report. It's called the Report on Manufacturers. This report flat out rejects Jeffersonian agrarianism and this nice, hardworking farmer rural society that, uh, again, Jefferson and his followers supported that we will all come together and the mutual work and labor and rugged individualism will lead to a shared experience and an an economic growth while still preserving the, again, the individual liberties and freedoms and rights to property. Um, and, And Hamilton is fundamentally against this, and it's revealed in his report on manufacturers. He cites uh, Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, although I don't know how well he had read it. I would trust he's probably read it better than most of our modern economists because you had very little to do in the 1700s. Um, but but he cites uh, Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations as one of his inspirations here. And the goal of this manufacturing aim is to promote domestic industriousness, to help artificially inflate domestic industriousness. He places duties on all imported goods that could also be uh, manufactured in uh, the newly forming United States. I don't know that I hate that horribly. I mean, I suppose that's what you do. Like if you're trying to get a new economy off the ground, you want to support domestic production. Yeah, you want to give people an incentive to buy quote unquote American rather than French or Dutch or whatever. Fine. I get it. Um, It is not a free market that I'd want. That's not a free market. Um, but I guess that's what you have to do. He ends up, uh, teaming with some other investors and forms the Society for the Establishment of Useful Manufacturers. He establishes like this cult for useful manufacturers where the profits from this new, basically in industry, and they're going to do multiple things, multiple, they're going to produce multiple goods, but the profits from this are going to go to their corporate members and shareholders and not the United States. The reason this is important is because he's using his title and privileges as the secretary or the secretary of the treasury of the United States to create this private entity that will generate private profits, not for the United States. That's the problem with this. The good news is this uh, uh, society for the establishment of useful manufacturers fails miserably. It falls flat on its face. So that's nice. The fourth thing that Alexander Hamilton is going to try to attempt is he's going to try to stop smugglers. So one of the things that had plagued, obviously, even Britain when it was still in control of the colonies was smuggled things like Dutch tea or French rum or Spanish rum or whatever. And because those were things that those were the things that duties were placed on, that the taxes were placed on, they were passed down to the consumer and the consumer would pay more for the goods and the duties would eventually trickle up to the governments of these respective countries. That's that's one of the things that had plagued them. Well, uh, we already talked about for Alexander Hamilton's National Bank to work, he required tax revenue on spirit like rum, liquor, and whiskey. And one of the things that he wanted to put an end to is smuggling in of those spirits. So to do this, he decides to take, again, public funds and create the Revenue Cutter Service in 1790. For those that don't know, Revenue Cutter Service literally is like boats, like patrol boats around the coasts that were meant to like stop smugglers and enforce duties. 
And I mean, is this like the precursor to the Coast Guard? It is exactly what it is. It is <laughs> the precursor to the United States Coast Guard. And it was not to protect American waters from like invasion. It's to generate revenue for the United States government and its economy. What do you think of that? That's so weird. Yeah. But I mean, it's not surprising at all. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you think of what the Coast Guard does today. Like, yeah. I mean, like nobody's not invading the United States because of the Coast Guard. They're like, what they're doing is they're like, you know, trying to stop narcos. No, yeah, if but you that's talk but to that's, people in that's, the Coast Guard. That's exactly what they do all the time. But that's yeah. but that's that's economic control, mm-hmm. right? That is a drug that the United States doesn't get to capitalize on, so it can't come in. Yeah, let's not fool ourselves that it's like some moral duty they're doing. Yeah, it's all economic. hard pass, yeah. hard pass on that type of type of support. Um, at least in regards to tracking down, uh, I guess, drug runners. I will give the Coast Guard credit for all of the amazing rescues they perform. Yeah. But as far as their economic duties... Or like stopping human trafficking or whatever. Yes. Yeah. As far as their economic duties, this it's not about protecting the American people from drugs. It's about revenue protection. That's that part. All right. And the fifth and final thing I want to focus on, which these didn't go in order. I just want to focus on this because this will leave us in a good spot for our next episode is an excise tax on whiskey um, and other liquors, but it's going to hit whiskey the hardest. Basically, this is the idea of, of, of generating revenue through the consumption of alcohol, but not just the consumption, the production of alcohol as well. And I want to recall to our listeners who uh, will reflect back on the Sugar Act slash Molasses Act of 1733 and then later 1760, uh, off the top of my head, four or five, Anyway, that was basically a tax to uh, inter- or to get England involved in generating revenue from the rum production process. But England focused on rum for two reasons. A, it was a drink of criminals like pirates, and B, for if it wasn't, it was a drink of the wealthy. So they knew that the wealthy could withstand this duty on their product. And they focused mostly on the consumption side, less so on the distilling side. It's going to be very different when we talk about the whiskey here. And the whiskey, again, being one of the favorite drinks of the lower class. So the British, in their taxing of alcohol, are emphasizing taxing the elites or criminals, who probably didn't pay anyway, but regardless. Hamilton, in his new economy, just like when he ignores the vets, he is going to focus on the tax, taxing the lower classes in what they like to drink. It all starts uh, with the first tariff of 1790, which included wine, coffee, tea, and other spirits. Whiskey in this first little tariff was actually removed by James Madison's proposal. And here's the other thing that Madison also did in this first attempt by Hamilton. He focused the duty only on imported liquors. Only on imported. So Madison's trying to save the people. Again, I cannot believe I'm saying this about James Madison, a staunch Federalist a legalist, trying to protect the elite interests of factions, as we talked about with Federalist Number 10. But in this case, let's give the man some credit. He is trying to help the, the regular people out here by protecting him from this excise tax. Um, and that's why he, again, under his proposals, focuses it on imports, not domestics, and removes whiskey. The new proposal by Hamilton, though, focused on both domestic and foreign spirits, but escalated the tax based on proof, like proof of the alcohol. So whiskey would have, it's usually got a pretty good proof on it. It ends up being, and because the amount of it that is produced and consumed, ends up being the most heavily taxed of the bunch. 
Again, it's clearly targeted. The tax is placed on the distillers, who of course were regularly inspected, and it would technically then be passed all the way on down on, down the line to the consumer, um, which is super interesting. But I want to stop there because uh, this leads us into one of the more interesting events called the Whiskey Rebellion, and that deserves its own episode, its own standalone episode, um, to discuss how essentially even after the Constitution is signed and we see like the powers that be further and further consolidate their control federally through, of course, or excuse me, politically – through the Constitution, legally, of course, through the way that the Supreme Court comes into being and who is named to it, and then, of course, now economically through Hamilton's reforms, this is about, again, this is no longer a discussion between federalism and anti-federalism. We're now seeing federalism in practice. Um, what are your thoughts on this? This like little, again, it's only, uh, what at most an eight year window that we're talking about here. And Hamilton's not even the treasurer for all eight of, 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 of those years. But regardless, it's like an eight year window immediately after the United States constitution. And it took eight years for the fed to become the fed. Like that's all it took like eight years from like this nice loose confederation of states that are all kind of like working together. And, and while that's problematic for numerous reasons, we've already talked about slavery, ethnic cleansing of indigenous people, blah, blah, blah. Regarding the spirit of the American Republic, it at least worked. This is something totally different. The Republic is dying from its inception. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think that the way you framed it is key, where the Constitution created this, like, sentiment of this government and, like, legally put it into place. But the people's, like, minds and actions hadn't actually changed yet. Basically, it's Hamilton coming around and putting it in place economically, establishing the economic authority of the federal government that really gets things to change. And I think like kind of, quote unquote, whips people into shape for starting to think federally uh, rather than just state state by state. And while our prior while our prior episodes have already revealed like Beard and Spooner's arguments about like, you know, constitution of no authority and things like that. I want to rewind to one of the first points I made in this episode. Less than 10% of eligible adults voted in this first electoral process. It is not truly representative of the people. Again, women weren't allowed to vote. Uh, slaves clearly not allowed to vote. Some individual states did allow some free blacks to vote. But it, again, that's hit or miss depending on what state you were in in the north. Other states had minimum land holdings requirements, and some states even made people pass religiosity tests just to be able to vote. And would Washington have probably won the executive anyway? Probably. He was super popular for his exploits during the war, although people were not aware of the things that I continue to repeat, ethnic cleansing of Iroquois, uh, execution of soldiers, those types of things. But regardless, he probably would have won anyway. But what this does is it shows that this government, from its inception, was elite constructed for elite interests, not the people's. Thoughts? Yeah, and I mean, Hamilton just takes that to the next level by putting in place economic systems that continue to benefit the elite at the expense of the people. So... I think that's all. This is a shorty compared to some of our other episodes, but I think it might be more digestible that way. Um, this is a little bit about Hamilton's econo economic policies. If you still like the musical, I won't judge you too harshly. 
Um, but anyway, what I want to uh, uh, close out with is the idea or is the thought. Make sure you uh, tune into the next episode because that's where we see reaction to Hamilton's economic policies. We will be talking. Nick will be guiding us through the Whiskey Rebellion. Uh, I have nothing else. What do you got for me, Nick? Uh, yeah, just catch us online. We're on Twitter at Rev and Ideology. We have a YouTube channel where you can subscribe. We post all of our episodes up there and actually other videos. Uh, you can just search Revolution and Ideology on YouTube and that'll come up. Uh, if you really like what we're doing, you can support us on Patreon. We're starting to get some uh, a few supporters there. Uh, we appreciate you guys so much. Uh, it means so much to us that people are willing to give us their hard-earned dollars to support what we do. Uh, yeah, I think that's it. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Stay uncomfortable. Later.